Welcome to Research Lives and Culture, the podcast that offers conversations about the research environment. Each week, I interview someone who works or has previously worked in research. We discuss about the approach they have taken to navigate their career, the critical decisions they have made, the joys they have had in their work, and the challenges that they have faced. I ask questions about what a supportive research environment really looks like, and about the actions that we can take to help the research culture empower people to thrive. My name is Dr. Sandrine Sou. I am a coach, facilitator, and trainer for the research environment, and your host on this podcast. I am committed to ease the path to research careers by sharing stories of researchers' lives. Today, I'm interviewing Christine Mwebesa, who lives in Uganda, and it's really my pleasure to invite her on this podcast. During February, we're going to do a lot of work on academic writing for researchers who are in Uganda and who are part of the NEMRA network. So I've invited a group of researchers from Uganda to contribute to a series of podcasts about their experiences as researchers, academics, and also as academic writers. So it's my pleasure to invite you, Christine, to come and share with us your experiences. So maybe we'll start by asking you a little bit about your early career history and how you became an academic, where you started and while you are in that very strange business of the academic world. Yeah. Good morning. Uh, yeah, it's good afternoon. I'm glad to be on this um, podcast. And thank you, Sandrine, for inviting me to participate in this interview. Since uh, um, 2007, that's when I joined the lecturing profession in a private university where I, I did my honours. So when I finished, I had an upper second and they invited me to join them. That was, I finished in 2002 for my honors and I said, no, I don't want to come into academics immediately until I have possibly attained a master's. Before I joined, I was working in the private sector, actually I would say public sector in different administrative positions. So when I joined, when I finished my master's I, in 2006, 2007, my university advertised for lecture position in management disciplines. So I applied and then I got into academics. I love academics um, even way back. But I feared one thing because like being in the teaching profession, it's like uh, poverty is calling and beckoning. So I was like, no, I think I can study and then get possibly a better position elsewhere. And can yeah. I ask you, is it quite unusual to work for the private sector before returning to, to academia? And why were you interested in working in the private sector before? Why did you feel that you didn't want to jump straight into a uh, a master and so on um, after your degree? Yeah, because like here, in, for instance, in Uganda, I don't know elsewhere, being an academic is prestigious, but it's not well-paying. Okay. So, 
And much as growing up, teaching wasn't a problem, love to teach. But then the challenge was, if I'm going to teach and I'm poor, going into more of a passion, not what you're going to earn out of it, but because of what you're going to share out there and change other lives. So when I did my master's, I was like, I don't think I really want only to earn. I think I love teaching and I love sharing knowledge. So I found it more satisfying to do that which helps other people than what I'm actually gaining out of it, which initially was the driving factor of going to work in the private sector than to join the academics. Do you think that uh, having spent several years working in the private sector was an advantage in, in some ways for you going back into academia? What, what do you think you've learned and what, what do you think you were bringing back into the academic world from this experience of working in the private sector? There was actually a lot that uh, I think I learned and is enriching my experience in the academic academic world. What I learned in the practice out there was more enriching because it, it informs the importance of the theory you learn and how it impacts out there once you interact with the real life experiences in the working environment. Yes, there was a lot I took on from practice because, for instance, I'm in management and specifically HR. So when I'm teaching my students I and I'm giving examples, I'm not only giving examples from the book and I'm not guiding my students only what I know from the book, but exactly what I've experienced in the real world environment, where things happen and where things actually need to be addressed. So It, yes, my, my past experience of working and now joining academia, it has been enriching and it's worth it to, to draw from. I mean, it's, it's mm. funny because in the UK, mm. there is a, a push from the government and from the founders about engaging with the public and making the research more impactful in the sense of connecting to real life. But from your own experience, I guess the discipline that you're in is, is very applied and it's about really using that experience on the ground and really connecting to whatever research and whatever theories people are developing. So Having spent some some years in uh, in the private sector, then you you went back and did uh, a master. Did you do that while you were still working, or did you went back full into into education? No, I I did my masters when I was still working. In fact, I joined the university environment to work after I had graduated with my masters. And then you spent some time working at the university before you went to do your PhD. Yes, I, I actually, I joined, I in, enrolled for my PhD in 2017, like 10 years I had been in the university teaching. Okay. Yeah, so actually now joining, enrolling for my PhD was motivated by working in the academic environment. I saw it and in fact, here in Uganda, if you don't have a PhD, your career progress, your, your advancement in the ladder of your academic um, career, it, it, it gets hindered a little bit unless you have your PhD. In fact, some private public universities, you cannot even be taken on as a full lecturer unless you have a PhD. 
So then to senior lecturer, you must have done uh, some supervision of a postgraduate student and done a number of publications before they make you a senior lecturer. While in some private universities, that once you have a PhD and possibly have already been in the academic world and supervised a number of students, it becomes kind of automatic to come on with maybe one publication to become a senior lecturer. Okay. My enrolling for PhD was motivated by the advancement of my career. Yes, it's gaining knowledge, it's creating knowledge, but it was more, if I was still in the private world working, not in the academic world, I there was no need for me to really enroll for a PhD. Mm. And so how did you go about choosing where to do a PhD and what was your approach in making a decision? Because obviously when we choose where to do a PhD, who to do a PhD with, and there are lots and lots of implication of the choices that we make. And sometimes we make choices just because they're just presented to us. And sometimes we try to be strategic and the end result is not necessarily what we wanted. So what was your approach in deciding what to study? Um, work with I, first, so I first applied for doing PhD. Actually, I was admitted at University of Reading in 2008. Okay. And the, the reason at, at that time was because when you go to the UK, here we know that the UK's education is more of quality compared to here. And secondly, it's that it, you don't take long on your PhD journey like here in Uganda. In Uganda, you can even take 10 years actually working on your PhD. Oh, wow. So I... <laughs> At that time, that was the most uh, motivating thing to go to the UK was I will get a credible, a good qu quality PhD, I'll get more knowledge than I would get here at home. And, uh, and of course, I will not take long doing the PhD. And uh, later, it was not possible for me to actually go much as I was admitted because the cost was equally so high. And so it means I needed a scholarship To, to get in if I was to manage. Mm. So I, my, 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 my desire to join UK unless I got a scholarship was not possible. So okay. I, I actually abandoned the whole project <laughs> and I didn't think about enrolling for PhD again until 2013 mm. Mm. when I, someone told me, say, you know what? South Africa, you can actually do it also in the shortest possible time and you in most of the universities the the credible universities you will you will get the qualification you're also looking for in the uk and uh, and this one is near a home it is easy to fly back home and check on your family it's easy than really flying to the uk so someone convinced me a colleague who had done hers from university of south africa Okay, so you decided to do the PhD in South Africa? Yes, it was in 2013. I decided I would do it. And initially I had wanted a business school because all my qualification and my practice has been in management and business sciences, those ones. So I, I this time in 2013, I enrolled at Gordon Institute of Business Sciences, which is a business school under University of Pretoria. And I did actually one year 
it was more of like a blended learning. You first do year one for your coursework, but uh, it's not like a full-time place. You can go every after two months, go in, come back, and then... So I did one year, and I realized is that I cannot also proceed with it. Okay. Because it became so expensive, especially flying out every after two months, coming mm. back home. That even after paying one year of the of the, the tuition, you find that moving up and about was not sustainable. So I realized my my journey for PhD was more of like moving up and about. I had not planned so well. So at the end of year one, after finishing my coursework, I couldn't proceed. Oh, I told my husband, "Unless we deplete all our savings, this thing is not worth it, and I'm likely to take four or five years on this course." So. We decided that I had already lost that one year and that money, but it was worth it than proceeding and failing along the way after putting in so much money. That must have been quite frustrating. That must have been quite hard <laughs> making the de- making a decision and having made this investment to say exactly. actually. So, so along the way, I've learned a lot in my trials. I've learned a lot that uh, PhD, you need to sit down and you look at many parameters before you really venture into it. It's not just uh, a one thing that you go in and do PhD, but there are many things to look at. The resources in terms of money, in terms of time, in terms of the sacrifice that will actually impact your family. And I had little children. So I think, I, I think in 2014, I abandoned the whole project of PhD. Mm. And uh, while I had abandoned it, uh, a sister of mine who had done her PhD at WITS told me, you know what, I know their professor who just came in from the wood. He's even when you check out his profile, and because she had been at WITS, she knew the privileges within if you are a full-time student that you could tap in and benefit from. And then I sat down with my husband and I said, do you think I should start out this thing again? Because I know my career is in academics and I cannot do much without a PhD. So he said, yeah, you can give it a try, but only when you feel you're ready now to, to venture into it. So I, I went with that, my sister, to, to see that professor and I talked to him. And for him, he is in education but his education is more on, on transformations taking place in higher education. So he accepted. He said, if you're ready and you want, I'm here. Just give me a shout and tell me what you want to your topic to be and go and think about it. And I said, fine. That was uh, towards the end of 2014. So I, in early 2015, I wrote to him, I said, are you still ready to supervise me? He said, sure. Have you, then he asked me, have you thought about what you want to, to now research about and what your issues are? And I said, sure, I think I know what I want to research about. So I said, give me, okay, write a one page about what you think the problem is and you want to research about and why you think it's a problem and why you think it's important to be addressed and what... So I did. I sent it to him. He looked at it. He said, I like it. 
So it's, and, uh, it's, it's funny because in some ways, for I mean, <laughs> often often people start a PhD, they actually start mm. not, not necessarily with an idea exactly of what they will be researching. They, mm. they want, they want the, the idea of the PhD, but not, probably not clarity on the topic that mm. they would want to study. But in your mm. case also, you had spent many years mm. in a way on the journey of going to be starting a PhD. So probably mm. you had more clarity than most when you were actually in a position to start. Huh? I think that's true. I think I had, I had, I knew what I wanted to research. And, and especially given that now I, of course, the only challenge was that I'm changing from my line of business school kind of thinking And now this is uh, actually, that's what I struggled on with when even I had agreed with my supervisor. I said, my orientation is business, it's management, it's that line. So when I'm talking of education, I'm like, do I really, really know what I am getting into and can I handle? And, and he comforted me and he said, no, already that's why he said, that's why I had told you, go and think about what you think is the problem to look at and why you think you are the right person to research that area and provide an answer to it. So I, I actually, even when you look at my write-up in my PhD, the motivation that I made me research what I researched, it was from the line of my experience as an academic in the space of uh, teaching and learning of our students and the environment that we work in as academics. What motivated me to do my research was the, my own experience as an academic in the changing higher education environment in Uganda. As an academic, there is something I can try to find out. Of course, along the way, there were many grapples of moving up and about, deciding on what exactly is the issue here and how do you dress it up to be an issue? How, are you sure it's an issue? So those were challenges along the way, but at least I knew there was something I had experienced as an academic that needed to be addressed or at least needed to be investigated. So I didn't start until actually 2016 when I went back now and I asked my supervisor, I asked him, are you sure now you can still supervise me? And he said, yes, mm. I'm ready to supervise you. I've looked at your academic papers. I've looked at your motivation and, and, and I am ready to supervise you. Are you ready yourself to start? I said, seriously. So I applied in September 2016 and 2017, I officially started at VITS. Mm. When people start a PhD quite mm. quickly after their degree, they probably mm. do not have the resilience that you already had shown. People discover their professional resilience during the upheaval of doing a PhD. But for, in, in your case, just getting there you had already shown a, a great resilience in navigating the system and finding a way of getting to be in a position to actually undertake the PhD. So a lot of the learning had, had already been done at the point of mm. starting. That's <laughs> mm. very true. I said, I'm going in, I'll be a full-time student and I'll give it my all. I'll sacrifice everything so that I do this work. And because I'd already been into now two times you're trying and not finishing. So first time, of course, I enrolled and didn't uh, start uh, at University of Reading. 
now here at, at University of Pretoria, they are, they, they are Gordon Institute of Business Science, one year done and not proceeding. So I was determined that this time I'm starting and I'm going to focus on only this and I'm going to do it and finish. I was not sure how long it would take me, but I was ready to go for it, depending on how long it will take me to, to actually finish my PhD. Can I ask you, Christine, you had to leave your family behind in Uganda and then became a full-time student in South Africa. How did you negotiate within your own family? Your family came with you on the journey of your PhD. And in, it's not easy for families. What advice would you give to other people, men and women who also have a dream of doing a PhD or need a PhD you know, to be able to climb the academic ladder? But the impact their, their desire or the need for their career has on their family. What advice could you give them from your own experience of having been on that journey? Yeah, there was, I would say one word, there was a lot of sacrifice. But this sacrifice was not one-sided. I had to first make sure that first I agreed with my husband and uh, I let him know he knew even himself that I needed this PhD for my career, but I, I needed to bring him on board to appreciate it. In fact, I even begged him, I said, if you're really into it with me, for the first year, you're going to clear my tuition. <laughs> <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and I said, for the rest of the years, I can handle, since I'm a full-time student, I'll have to navigate the, the university spaces where there are privileges and opportunities of tapping into some of the tuition and scholarships available to full-time students. And, and he said, it's okay. Now, our, of course, I had young children. Our young person that time was turning six. And, and he said, it is fine. And the only challenge now we had at that time, he was working also in, in Rwanda, which is away from Uganda. Okay, okay. And he would come in every after two weeks to be at home with us and go back. Now here I was going, back, going meant that I had to depend on the nannies and my young sister who was at home with my children, who okay. was also willing. So I had to bring on board all the social capital I could draw from and agree with them before I actually started on this journey of my PhD. So my sister allowed, my mother offered to check on my children at least once a month. My husband had now changed from flying in every Tuesday, I mean every two weeks, and now he had to travel by bus to cut on the coast every weekend. It meant that he had to be on the road every Friday the whole night and be back on the road the whole Sunday night to check on the children. It was hectic, it was actually hectic, but I had prepared all of us <laughs> before yeah, I yeah. started on the journey. I prepared everyone and we agreed and we knew there was a cost, there was a sacrifice, there was a serious input from every person who was willing to support me, but I had to prepare them and I had to prepare myself for the consequences. So, and after one year, It was not post. My husband said, what? I am resigning this job because I, I, I know it's a good job. I haven't finished my contract, but it's too hectic even for my children because it's like now every time he would be trying to move there, like, again, you're going. So he said, no, I, I am letting go of this job. In other words, he sacrificed his job for my PhD. 
Mm. And uh, but if I, if we had not been prepared for the likely consequence, it would have been more. I think it was it would have been terrible. I don't know. I think it would have been very terrible. So he sacrificed that job. So when I came in, because my PhD every semester, every end of semester, I would come back home, and at every beginning of the next semester, I would go back to the university. So I would be with them that month. And, uh, and it was quite, all of us, we noticed it was hard, even on the children. And uh, I conceived, I didn't expect to conceive. I wasn't looking for a child, I, <laughs> but it happened. So we now sat and say, okay, I'm going back. Will we manage? He said, if you are strong enough, go back. Because we've already started this journey. We've already put in so much. You are determined to go for it. You have to go for it. So... Of course, the rest is history. We have a baby girl who is turning three. Luckily enough, the following year, he got another job in Uganda now. Mm-hmm. It wasn't well-paying like the other one. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to share that there's a lot of sacrifice. The story you share about your husband is really important because we make a lot of assumptions mm-hmm. what our partners may, may be prepared to do or not. But from, from what you said, mm-hmm. is preparing the family and having a lot of really difficult mm-hmm. conversation with partners. For women, the expectation that we have of what, what we ought to do for families, the opportunities that we create for ourselves. You an example of someone who works in partnership with your husband to make this, uh, using all of the resources that we have to make things possible about what we want to do, that we don't have to try everything by ourselves, but bringing yeah. all who loves us and wants to support us to come and, and help us. It is a hard journey. I would like to, to ask you now some questions about the, your journey into writing. What mm. was really interesting in your bi- biography that you actually worked as a writing consultant in a writing center. And I don't know mm. if it was when you were in, in South Africa. Mm. And so, I mean, I think that writing is one of these things that we, you, it's not like you, you have it and you, you figured it out from day one. It's something that we, we, we all have to, you know, work through and, and struggle throughout our professional lives. So can, can you give me an idea of what's your life in, in writing? How do you find writing easy, difficult? Tell us a little bit about your own experience into becoming an academic writer. Thank you, Sandrine. For the writing center that is at Vitz, Vitz School of Education, the writing center in our school. Along the journey, of course, would be into a number of writing workshops as PhD students. But this writing center actually it's mostly to to help people who are struggling with writing. And I know every person at any point in time of their writing, there's always a challenge here and there because writing has got different faces, especially in academic writing. Personally, even in my O-levels, I used to write, but I found that when it comes to academic writing, writing takes a different direction altogether. Because in my O-levels, I would do some poems, I would create some, some, uh, some acts for people to act for students, a little bit of skits here and there, because I did literature. So it was that bit of writing in that line easy for me. And, and would come easily. But when it came to academic writing, I, I discovered that it's a different genre altogether. And so I was a little bit, I think, struggling, or I, I expected it to be, maybe I expected it to be the fact that it's called academic writing and it's for scholars. 
for people who are doing PhD, I think there's some some kind of um, aura that comes with it. So I, I struggled, I think, emotionally and generally to actually put it together and write. So during these workshops that they'll give, the academic writing workshops, which they would give PhDs in our, they call them PhD weekends and PhD workshops. I, I, I found it enjoyable because I discovered that actually the giant I feared wasn't even there. Okay. I, I, I said, yes, it has a different definition and indeed it has its own character, but I think it's doable. So uh, that's when one of the academic, I mean, the writing center director saw me and saw how I was doing my thing. And every time they were processed, he said, Christine, I think you can join a writing center. I said, seriously? Yes, you're going to help our postgraduate students and uh, the undergrad students who are coming in. So that's how I joined the, academic, the writing center of it. And I can assure you, even as I was helping others, I learned a lot myself. I discovered that there were different types of academic writing. That's when I discovered which one were my strong areas. I, I discovered that I was more on the descriptive, easily to, to, to write descriptively, and, and uh, some part of persuasive writing. But I discovered that I also had a lot to learn and a lot to perfect on my analytical uh, skill and critical writing skill. So during that time, as I helped others, I also tried to perfect mine. And I know I have not arrived yet, but I am somewhere. And possibly it even helped my thesis when I was putting it together. Can I ask you, Christine, what, why, I mean, it's interesting because you had, when you came to do academic writing in the context of your PhD, you already had had many years expense of writing for whatever job you had in the, in the private sector. And then as a lecturer, mm. as looking at students' essays and so on. What do you think we make such a massive big fuss about academic writing? Because you said earlier that it's about scholar and almost like we make, we put this like on a pedestal of, of, of it being so very, so very different from other type of writing. Why, why do you think we, we do that? And because it's, it's almost like we're creating something that's limiting ourselves. Yeah, I think even when you're there, I can, I can tell you the truth, Sandrine. Even when I was joining, I was feeling academic writing like it's some sort of this big thing. It's not for everyone. And, and indeed, when you're looking at articles from some journals, it's too complicated, too hard. Too, it's for only the scholars. You get what I mean? Yeah, yeah It would yeah. be like it's for a certain category of people. It's not for everyone. So when you come in, you come in with this fear, you come in with this timidity, but it's after you've actually got in and discovered that, yes, yes, like us, but it's also possible, it's doable, it's something, it has its own character, but which character is also possible to actually adopt. So mm. yes, I'd been in the private sector and public where we actually write in public service, you do a lot of writing and good writing really. And when I came in, into the academic writing, I thought it was because they would say, ah, you have to be critical, critical writing. I'm like, okay. So it, it, it has this kind, has been given this hype. It's not like impossible to do. When you're starting a new writing project, 
Yes. Now, what is your default position in starting your writing projects? What, what do you do in, very practically? How do I do my writing? Yeah. Like even in, in all my halves, I've had where you plan your writing. I don't plan my writing, especially okay. when I'm starting out. I don't plan. I let it be. It's spontaneous. Okay. It is very spontaneous. And then the planning comes after when I'm like saying, okay, what should be my theme? What should be, what is the main topic here? What should flow into what? What should, which comes much later. Uh, so at the end of the day, when I'm writing at the beginning, of course, with the, our thesis thing, now you are forced, it's chapter one. It must have this, this introduction, and this one has to be, you get it. But to me, that one comes much later. It is spontaneous. I write and I write. Even when I was doing my analysis of my, or my um, my data, really, I write and I let it flow. Afterwards, I go back, I sit into it, then I'm like, okay, this one is me. So this one now I start making, <laughs> that's when now I start doing my topics <laughs> and subtopics. And then I pick the other one, put them in. And after that, that's when I start editing. Now I write the story as it flows. I write, just write as it comes. It's interesting because you use the yes, writing Andrea. process in itself as a thinking process. Your research is done through through writing mm -hmm. and then the organizing is, mm -hmm. is the sort of the second stage. A lot of people mm -hmm. get stuck because they feel that they need to have their plan so well laid out that it's really inhibiting the process instead of this kind of free flow writing that's kind of engage you into mm, the process mm. of writing. I, I allowed myself to write. Of course, if you look, I have so much writings than what I put in my thesis because I would write. You know? I would write my thoughts. I would write my thing. I would write what I've seen. I would write what I have thought about it. I would write what I would make sure I would say when I'm about to write it and it's a thought, I give it a name or where I think it will fall better, whether it will be under the methodology chapter or whether it will fall under more of my analysis chapter. So I would write that bit on it on top of what I'm going to write and then I'll let it flow. What sort of habits do you have in terms of writing regularly? Yeah, I, I first and foremost, I say that my PhD made me rediscover my writing desire to write. Of course, during the PhD time, it was only you focus on your PhD. Yes, I managed to do a few, I think, two book chapters in the period. And But now, as I start out and a lot is happening, I have purpose that every time from 11 to at least midnight, I must write a piece of some sort. 11 of Uganda, 11 East African time, 11 p.m. I must do something on my write-up. Sometimes it's only a paragraph actually in all that time, but it will be something. I'll write it so that I don't lose the grip of my writing and I don't lose the desire of keeping writing because like there's a lot I must write up on my PhD if it's going to be really helpful to, to the communities that I, I, it really will impact. So, so you, 11 every day, Monday to Saturday, I must write something. Okay. So, I mean, it's really good to hear that uh, having a habit of at a certain time, it's almost mm. like you're not giving yourself permission to find excuses not to do it. Mm. You just do it. Mm. And whether it's a little bit or it's, uh, you know, or, not, or a lot, 
but it's just okay yes. 11 is when I can do it and when I will do it that's when my house is quiet everyone has gone to bed there's no one disturbing there's nothing to look for I just sit mm. Hmm. Can I ask you now, Christine, what, what do you think has helped you the most in terms of improving your writing? Because, I mean, you said that you, when you were in, in South Africa at Wits University, you, you went to some workshops and so on. But, uh, and I always say to people, they, there are lots of workshops and there are a lot of, lots of books on, on writing mm-hmm. and we could be reading them all we could be attending all of the workshops in the world and our academic writing may not improve efficiency with, with writing mm. so w- what matters is what we put in motion how we action the learning mm. that we do about writing so so in your case what do you think has been the most influential or what's made the biggest difference in the way that you feel that you're able to write better Most of our workshops and retreats were actually hands-on. They would give you like 30 or 20 minutes of faster explaining, for instance, if it's about the different wordings that are important in social sciences, the different ways of putting your essay together, and then afterwards they will say, now go and work on whatever you're working on. So you're like, then you come back, you're discussing what they do put in. And I think I loved it most because most of us, you're already trying to write something and maybe struggling to write something. For instance, I, I, I learned one bit that I had always taken for granted because when we're in secondary, you learn that you, each point is a paragraph, okay? But then the introduction is supposed to, to give you the summary of all that is going to be in the body and then how do you connect the, the conclusion of your introduction and the conclusion of the whole body? So I, I, I learned those bits that would have been taken for granted e- easily and that you don't actually, in, in academic writing, you don't start with the points put on, you actually you write and explain, then support it, then argue it out, then conclude. So those bits, because they were hands-on, and then you bring up, they bring out your paragraph and they say, uh-uh, this paragraph is missing this, or actually it mixed up this, or the conclusion is not agreeing with what you said in the introduction and it's not tying together. Those small, small bits, really, or that you don't start, for instance, with a citation in your paragraph, you start with a sentence, a leading, how do you call it? And then you, you add on. And so those bits that one would think it's automatic, they were not automatic, I learned them along that journey of hands-on. Those things that you didn't know they were important, I picked them also along. And along the way, they perfected the way. When you think about a PhD researcher is that they they often reluctant to share their writing early on with their supervisor because they're scared of showing their writing because the writing is imperfect. And sometimes supervisors mm-hmm. are too busy to look at the at the writing early on. They don't really want to see your multiple drive. They may just want to see something that you've actually worked for some time. And mm. there is often some tension between PhD students and supervisor because it's like the expectation of when you want to have your, your writing seen or, or PhD supervisor getting frustrated because their students are not giving them the writing. So what mm. I'm interested is in, in your experience, you know, have, have you made much use of communities of writers with other PhD students or is it something that's not that developed yet either in Uganda or in South Africa when when you were a PhD student there? 
in Uganda, I think we are yet to develop it, but in South Africa, it's common. Even what we call the, the for instance, in the writing center, we even encouraged our our postgraduate students was that there's what we used to call the shut up and write, where you meet and you you just they set the, the system every 25 minutes, you're writing, then there's a break of like five minutes and then you write for like more than one and a half hours. You're there writing on your work and uh, sometimes you're looking at each other's work to see are you writing anything sensible, especially as the PhDs will be like looking through each other's work, not necessarily that you're having the same discipline, but you are on the same journey of your PhD, possibly at the same level, you will look through and say, okay, so this is what you intended to write. Don't you think this would have come here? Don't you? So you read through each other's work and uh, you encourage each other and you're like, yo, you're doing a great work. Um, yeah, I'm struggling. Ah, in one hour, you've written only one paragraph. He said, no, that's it's rather be a paragraph and you've written something and it's something taking you somewhere. So, so yes, in South Africa, at least at our university, there's that session. And many this, many faculties were now raising that platform to encourage their, their students where you go in and shut up and write, just write. So, mm-hmm. and encourage one another. Here in Uganda, we are yet to, Nemura, I hope we'll spearhead that one, where we have the, the writing retreats and your writing, your writing and your writing, and possibly even peer reviewing or reading each other's work. And that's what will happen in, in February during the, the writing mm-hmm. program. That's we need really, it so much. Yeah, really exciting. And people to know that actually writing is not a, a solitary kind of experience. You can actually make it enjoyable in a group, in a community, to create community. One of the things I would really would like to ask you is, what do you find really exciting about writing? Because we often talk about the suffering that we have through writing and the struggle, but actually it can be something that's also enjoyable. So from your point of view, if you put away all of the challenges and the pain and all that, what are the positives and the things that you actually have joy with when it comes to, you know, to writing and publishing and so on? I, I think there's nothing so satisfying like looking at your work and you even wonder if you're the one who wrote it. And uh, and you'll be like, I wrote this and it makes this sense. It is satisfying. It's beautiful. And to know that actually your mind is so rich and it can write anything. There's nothing satisfying and beautiful like looking at your piece of work you've written and you start saying, am I really the one who wrote this? You know, mm-hmm. so and yet you could not have known that you can have such great writing unless you wrote. So, uh, like yes. I'm saying, I enjoyed my 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 chapter, my literature chapter in my thesis. I was like, oh, so you mean I could synthesize like this and write this? So writing is is so satisfying, and you cannot unless you write. You cannot know its beauty unless you write. So personally, I write my mind easily. I can write than speaking, I will write. So when you look through and, you, and you're looking at it, you'll be like, you'll be like, uh, seriously, I wrote this? Wow, this is beautiful. So not only do you start appreciating yourself, but you start also appreciating people who write like you or who people whom you want to emulate that you'd love to write like them. 
So I, mm. I find writing so satisfying myself. I'm not saying it is easy, <laughs> but I find it beautiful. I, I love I love what I write and what I find you know, writing is, is, is satisfying. I like your enthusiasm. <laughs> can, I, can I ask you to finish off our discussion? I could be speaking for, for hours with you, but we need probably to finish off. So are there some tips that you could give to a PhD student or new in a new academics who find mm. writing challenging? What, what sort of, do you have five tips that you could be sharing with them? To, to get them going or to help them, to motivate them, to enthuse them? What, what would you say to them? Maybe I might not call them five tips, but one, one thing I can say is uh, first and foremost, want to identify where her strength is in writing, especially if we look at the different types of academic writing. One who, some people are strong. Personally, I'm strong at descriptive writing stronger there to, to, to put it there the way I think the way it comes out. Then others are strong at critical, others are strong at uh, analytical, others are strong at persuasive. So needs first def- identify their strength, where it is. And we know that in, in academic writing, especially our thesis, different elements of the thesis actually require different types of academic writing and they are all critical. But I guess when you first identify your strength, it gives you a confidence that yes, I can write, except that you cannot write in all all the different types well, but you first identify your strength, then maximize that strength which you have and build on it by adopting the skill you need in the other types. And then that next bit is also to identify the, your suitable time of writing, okay? There are times when I push, like when I started out for my thesis, sometimes you write one hour, but as the story builds, you discover you can write for many more hours. But also in the writing, you discover that is when I forced myself to write on it, find out later that I wrote nothing because I was either tired or I missed my line of thought or I, I wrote because I must write. So I, I, I think you, you discover, find out the time that is convenient for you to write. Then find out the time that is, is this require when you, you're so tired, how much can you put in? Or when you, the, the, the writing needs a lot of thinking and, and a long, longer time, where can you fit in? So you work out your, 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 your time and your environment of writing. Another one, read about people's write-ups. There are certain people who write and say, this person's writing really appeals to me. And I think I wouldn't mind picking this kind of skill for my writing. Because where your passion is, it keeps you going even when the energy runs out. So if you find out those people who write so well that all you feel you want to identify with in their writing, then you read those people's material. Listen to to different descriptions of that particular genre of writing and what appeals to you and learn that skill and adopt it. Then another bit, of course, is to know when you're tired and let go because you, there are times when we we'll force it and we will not do much. Then also other people, they are like me, I'm a free write. I can write spontaneously. Spontaneity works for me than if I have a cut and stone thing, I must do this and finish this. And then finally, allow flexibility in your writing allow even to move between chapters between topics between 
sections between subunits allow that bit and also lastly know that writing and reading they go together wow lots of good advice there that's fantastic christine thank you so much mm -hmm. so my last question is about ritual about writing So for me, uh, when I was writing my doctorate in education, I, I would sit next to the radiator on a tiny, tiny little desk that I had, that my mother bought me when I was 12. And it's a mm. super tiny little desk, but that was a special desk. That was kind of my comfort zone to, to be doing the, the writing. But do you have, I don't know, a special mug or something a little bit funny and weird that is part of your ritual? <laughs> Incidentally, in my home, I, I don't have even what we call a study. Maybe what has made it meet work even after 11, I use our dining table. <laughs> okay, okay. So I, I have a specific place where I sit at the head of the table and uh, even where my computer is plugged in, everything is set around that portion. So I, I, that is where I sit. And it has to be around that time, which is more convenient. When I was doing my PhD, of course, it was uh, wherever you are that is convenient and quiet and will allow you to concentrate. If it was not in the office at school, it would be when I, at the unit I was staying in, where I was renting, I would go in my unit and I sit and lean over the wall and work. Mm -hmm. So, but in my home, it has to be when everyone has left the house, gone to their, I mean, left the, the sitting room and they are all in their beds. That's fantastic. Thank you. Mm. Well, we're going, I'm going to stop the, our discussion today. It's been really mm. wonderful to hear from you, Christine. Mm. And I look forward to, to be seeing you during the, the events that we will be hosting during February. Sure, I'll be there. I'll be available. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion I had with my guest. I'm very grateful that you've been listening to us. I hope that you will join me in the future podcast. I wish you a very good day. And if you want to contribute to the podcast, I'm very interested to hear from you as I'm always happy to, to invite some new interviewees on this podcast. So if you've got an interesting story about life in research and about the research environment, get in touch with me at sandrine at tesseldevelopment.com.